0: Do so, I, don't, I don't really people come my class so, have you. You. Okay. he gets great. Right, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen when he's no longer two, but for now I'm okay. <laughs> okay yesterday we spoke about El being a month of compassion. Rahamib is the Hebrew for compassion. Um, and I, I asked if you could maybe give some thought to the idea of compassion and how compassion has these two elements to it. On the one hand, there is seeing the, the negativity, the judgment, the assessing that something is not good, not as it should be, the tragedy of the situation. And at the same time, there's the care for whoever is undergoing that kind of difficulty or that negativity. And that real compassion is we're able to have both of those together, one doesn't limit the other. So compassion for a small child is not really reflect on what compassion is because it's easy, not to, it's easy kind of to suspend the judgment because a child didn't cause their own problems. Right? But to really see that someone is, has a problem and they've caused the problem and they're responsible for the problem and to still care about them and desire the problem to be fixed and to be there for them, that is really what compassion is and so it requires a kind of a, a depth and a maturity to hold both of those things together simultaneously. So, did anybody actually spend some time thinking about it? Yeah. Good. Happy. All right. So, today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the famous analogy of the king in the field. Now, I was informed. That's a very passive way of avoiding assigning responsibility to anybody, right? I was informed. <laughs> Who informed me? Nobody knows. But I was informed that in the, that you, in some, I believe it's the morning Chasidis class, you were learning a Maimur, a Meimler Chassidic discourse involving the king in the field? So, we like almost got to it yeah. and then she's like, we'll do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she said that yesterday also. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But so... But when I like, think not ready yet. Okay, so... You we know the king's in the field. Okay, so what I would like to do... What I would like to do... um, And, and, and I was also told that despite the fact that it's going to be covered in the morning class, I should also touch on it. So, what I'd like to do is give two very um, important introductions because you're learning it in two different classes, two different teachers, two different contexts. One is, this is a general rule about everything. No two teachers teach something the same way and it's very important to be able to listen to one teacher independent of what the other teacher has said. In other words, when a teacher is teaching you something Hopefully, what's happening is that there's the truth of the Torah, and there's that person's um, own mind, and they are trying to get an authentic understanding of that Torah as it makes sense in their mind, and then convey that to you. So, the fact that two different teachers teach the same thing in different ways should not be seen as a problem. That should be seen as as a using the coding idea. It's a feature, not a bug. So... It, it happens to, I thought it was the second person teaching, but it turns out I'm the first person teaching it, but it doesn't really matter. Don't sit in in the class. Is it a male teacher or female teacher teaching the class? Female. female. Don't sit in the class tomorrow the next room she gets to it, and sit the thing, oh, that's not what Rebecca Coffin said. It's different than Rabbit Coffin said. Like mm-hmm. let let her explain it as her mind understands it and and what you end up is that this idea is multifaceted. It has different dimensions to it. And you'll hear a third and a fourth and a fifth. And that, that's how it works. Okay? Um, just to use it as, as an example, when we study the weekly Torah reading, we study the Chumash, we have Rashi's commentary. Rashi explains what the Chumash means. But Rashi is not like the authoritative version of the Chumash. That's, that is one true insight into how to understand the Chumash, the weekly Torah reading. There's also the Ramban. There's also the Sfarno, There's also this. There's also that. And and in Judaism, we have this idea of these and these are the words of the living God. As long as somebody is sincere and humble and God-fearing, if they apply their mind to try and understand something, if they come up with something that is reasonable, that's a facet of the truth and we try to understand it. So the same idea, the same text can be understood and taught in different ways. And it, it, it will really help you in your life and it will make the teacher's life a lot easier if you let every teacher have that space to show you their facet of, what, of the idea. Um, and then ultimately, you know, with all the different exposure, you develop your own sense of the things, which can also evolve over time. Okay, so that's a general introduction because you're gonna be learning the same idea from two different people. The, the second thing is that, about specifically the topic, I am only going to be talking about the analogy of the king in the field as it shows up in the original discourse of the Alter Eba for the original purpose that he brought it. I'm not going to be elaborating on that further. Now, this is an idea, this analogy, the king of the field is developed in many Hasidic discourses, um, and there's a lot of aspects to it, it's in-depth to it. I'm going to be ignoring all of those things and dealing with just the kind of core idea as it features in the first time it was brought. Um, And so, given that, what I want you to realize is that this idea is actually not just that it's, it's not just that there's my way of looking at it, I'm also specifically selecting one particular context in which the idea has been presented, kind of the original version. But throughout um, the, the, the history of, of the Hasidic movement, this idea has been developed and understood in multiple different ways. So you can even find Hasidic texts where the king in the field is approached in very different ways. Okay? So what she's going to draw on, what she's going to do, and how she's going to approach it, both as a product of her mind and also the actual text themselves. There's a lot of things. I don't know which version of the, which, which memory you're learning. I don't know. So we're just going to do that. So yeah, given those two introductions, we'll get started, okay? There is something called the 13 Attributes of God's Mercy. yud gil give the 13 Attributes of God's Mercy, okay? Now, a just general rule in Judaism, whenever you get a number, don't trust the number. Okay? Why? Because the number is always wrong. How many tribes are there? Twelve. 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 But if you count them, there's 13. You either group two tribes as one, or you leave out one of the tribes. Okay? There's always this rule in Judaism that all the numbers are actually a little bit more misleading. How many mitzvahs are there in the Torah? Have you counted them? No. If you count them, you end up in the thousands. So you have to drop some or, or group some together to get it to equal 613. The numbers are never just like simple lists. Okay. So there's an actual verse in the Torah um, where Moshe is beseeching Hashem to forgive the Jewish people. And Hashem forgives the Jewish people. And, he, and the 13 attributes of Hashem's mercy are invoked. And so you think, okay, well, if they're written there in the scripture, you just count them, right? The problem is if you count them, there's actually more than 13 things there. So you have to figure out which things get grouped together and which things get left out to make the equal 13. And so there are different traditions as to how to interpret the verse, what the 13 attributes actually are. Um, so, for instance, in the original discourse, the, the altar actually says that one of the names of God in the verses are referring to one of the attributes of mercy, but other, other commentators understand it. So there's these 13 attributes and they represent God's mercy. Now, we're going to treat them as a unit, the 13 attributes of mercy. We're not going to worry about what individual, each individual one is. Um, the 13 attributes of mercy are fundamentally different than what we're going to call normal mercy. And by normal mercy, I mean God's mercy. God's mercy in Kabbalah comes in two basic flavors. His normal mercy and the 13 attributes of mercy. What's the difference? Normal mercy is limited. It's constrained by something else. Whereas the 13 attributes of mercy are unlimited mercy. I'm going to use use an analogy so we understand what I'm talking about. So mercy, compassion, I'm going to be using interchangeably. Okay, just... In the Hebrew word "rachamim" could be translated as mercy. Could translate as compassion. So we use the word compassion. I think compassion is a little bit better to, when you actually elaborate what the idea is. But translations are are be it be what they are. I'm going to use a different emotion, just a, a simpler emotion. Um, and the emotion that we're going to we use is love. Love is the desire to be with or have or connect to someone or something. Okay, that's what I mean by love. So we're going to have unlimited love and limited love. And what I mean by unlimited love and limited love is very simple. Limited love is constrained by my rationality. Which means at a certain point, it's not wor- the love is not worth it anymore and I lose my interest, I lose my desire for said thing or person. So if I love somebody because they're interesting, if they're no longer that interesting, I don't love them anymore. Okay? Um, but then there's a love which is not limited by my rationality. Right, So, you know, quintessentially that would be like, talk about like the love we think of like parents um, have to children when children are in distress. It is very painful for the parent to be there for the child. They may not even be able to do anything for the child and yet where does the parent want to be with the child? My, my, one of my sons had a classmate who had um, a growth in his brain and he was terminally ill and the parents spent about a year and a half in hospital room next to him. And it's not like they were doing anything for the child and sometimes he wasn't even conscious. But like they felt like this is where, I w-. it's a weird thing to say, but I want to be here even though it's not, a, it's not a pleasant experience to be there. It's a truly painful experience to be there. But the sense of of needing to be with their child, that kind of love was so intense that no amount of rationalization really, you know, the fact the person needs to go home and sleep, the fact that they have jobs, the fact they have other children, all of that just got set aside. So this idea of rationality is what constrains many of our emotions, but in certain situations, it doesn't. So when we talk about the 13 attributes of mercy, what we mean is where Hashem's mercy, Hashem's compassion is not constrained by His rationality. Okay, What that very simply means is, normal mercy, you have to deserve. Normal mercy um, has to be appropriate, and so, you could, you could get to a place where um, Hashem does not show a person mercy. But that's talking about normal mercy. If we're talking about the 13 attributes of mercy, then there's no notion of limiting that mercy, limiting that compassion by anything, no matter how bad the person is, how wicked the person is, it doesn't matter. The 13 attributes of mercy will sh- m- mean that Hashem will have compassion on that person no matter what. Okay? So that's what we mean when we talk about the 13 attributes of mercy. 13 attributes of compassion, we could say. Now, that would mean when Hashem relates to us with a 13, um, at, these 13 attributes, it's a very special thing. That make sense? In other words, if you think about, Bogbeck's back to the analogy I use for, for love, most of the love that we feel is constrained by our rationality. Most of our love is constrained by the sense that it feels like it's worth it for us. Whether we're right about that judgment or wrong is beside the point, but it feels like it's worth it for us. Once it doesn't feel worth it anymore, we, we, we lose interest in most things. The example that I gave of a love which is unlimited is an exceptional circumstance, right? Most of the kind of unlimited emotional experiences come out in very unique, very extreme circumstances. Not necessarily negative ones, but also be positive ones, but they're very unique, they're very special. Not the normal, everyday kind of experiences. And so there's a rule in Kabbalah that the fact that we have special times that we actually live life differently, say so Shabbos, we live life differently on the weekdays, holidays, is because Hashem is relating to us with these kind of special experiences. So when Hashem shows like his normal love, his normal mercy, his normal whatever, that's just, those are the fluctuations of regular time. But when there's these exceptional revelations, in the, our case we're talking about Hashem's unlimited mercy, that... Brings about a different kind of time, a holy time, whether it's going to be Shabbos or a holiday. And so, if and this is the question that arises from this: if the month of Elul is a time where Hashem is is relating to us from the thirteen attributes of mercy, He's giving us, He's showing us this unlimited compassion, then it should be a month long holiday. There should be, a, we, we should, just like Shabbos or Rosh Hashanah or Sukkot or Yom Kippur, it should be a month long holiday. And yet, we don't find that Elul has any special. Observances. I mean, we have some customs that we do, but it's not a special day. We, we do work, we do everything normally. And so the question that the al Rebbe in his discourse wants to understand is, if Hashem is sharing with us, Hashem is relating to us in this exceptional way, why is the month an ordinary month in actual practice? There seems to be a disconnect there. That's the issue that the king in the field analogy is meant to address. And to make it a little bit more concrete, Classically, the time where we say Hashem reveals the 13 attributes of mercy is Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the most exceptional time of the year. We don't even eat and drink. We completely abstain from, from normal, everyday life. And Elul is like the opposite. There's no, there's, no, there's no special restrictions or special practices that God puts on us at all. So how do we understand that something exceptional is being shared with us, together with the fact that it's just an ordinary, everyday month? day-to-day kind of thing. That's the issue. Okay. And in order to understand how you can have this combination of the extraordinary with the ordinary, he brings this an, the analogy of a king in the field. Okay. So, the issue here that we're trying to understand is this exceptional kind of compassion that Hashem has together with the ordinary day-to-day life, not a holiday that we have in the month of Elul. Are there any questions about what I've said before we go to the actual analogy? That's the context of what, that's the, that's the purpose of the analogy, what the analogy is trying to, to help us understand. Good? Okay. Now, so what I want to do is I would like to go over the analogy very quickly and then go into what everything in the analogy represents. And I'm only gonna talk about things in the original discourse. So there's aspects of the analogy, like I said, are developed in other discourses. I'm only gonna talk about the analogies that are, the aspects of the analogy that are, that are overtly relevant to this issue and without explaining anything. So I'm just kind of like, kind of just do, this is equivalent to this, this is equivalent to that. So we know what the analogy is, we know what everything represents and then explain what we're talking about more conceptually and try and bring it to life, okay? So the analogy is like this, you have a king, and before the king comes to the city, he is in the field, and then all of the people in the city go out into the field um, to greet the king, and the king receives everybody, everybody, and he receives them with a pleasantness, and he smiles at everybody, and then they accompany him into the city and then he enters his palace. And once he's in his palace, then only except only special people are permitted to enter and have an audience with the king. That's the analogy. So you have a king, the king's on his way to the city. Before he's in the city, he stops in the field. And the field, right, so the people from the city can go out to the field and everybody can go and greet the king and the king receives everybody and he's pleasant and he smiles at everybody and they go accompany the king to the city. But once the king enters into the palace, at that point, it's very exclusive, only the only, only very important people and only by appointment have can kind have of an audience with the king. Okay, good? So the elements of the analogy that we're going to talk about are first off the king and the field, that's obvious, right? But we're also going to talk about the palace, okay? And we're going to talk about the desert. Now you're asking yourself, there was no desert in the analogy, right? Did I mention a desert? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, why am I going to talk about a desert if there was no desert in the analogy? We had a king, we had a field, we have a palace. Why am I going to talk about, why am I going to talk about a desert also? No. Where does the king go before he goes, to, where does the king go before he goes into the palace? The city, before he gets to the city. So we're going to treat the city and palace as one thing. Court, well, that wasn't in the analogy. Mm-hmm. He's on his way to the palace and the city. But he goes first to the field. field. Oh, okay. okay. He goes to the field. The field, it's just that happens to you, there's a field. He goes specifically to the field as opposed to going where? The to the desert. In other words, the idea is that the desert is, is in being implied by the field. He goes to a field, not a desert. On his way, in other words, it's not, just a, it's not just a question of it happens to be that the city is over there and the king is over here and there's a field in the middle. He's in, going to the field purposefully. And so the fact that it's a field is significant. If it wasn't a field, if it would be, say, a desert, he would not go there on his way to the palace. Okay? So, and in the discourse, this is actually elaborated later on. When, he, when, he, when, he, when the analogy is, 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 is developed, he mentions there's a, have a field and a desert. So the, 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 the field is not just the place in between where the king is and the palace where he wants to get to. He, he intentionally goes to make a visit in the field because of it's a field, but he would never intentionally go to the desert. Okay? So it's there by implication. Okay? So we have the king, we have the palace, right? city, palace, we're gonna treat that as a unit. We have the field where the king does intentionally go on his way to the palace. There is the desert where he does not go. Okay. And then we have two kinds of people. We have the everybody. That's going to be a kind of person. Everybody. And we have special people. VIPs. Okay. What's the difference between the regular people, everybody, and the VIPs? If you want to... If you want to meet the king. If you want to meet the king in your everybody, where do you have to meet the king? In the, in the field. If you want to meet the king in the palace, you have to be what kind of a person? Be a special person. A special person. And even then, you need an audience. You need an appointment. right? Okay, so those are the elements that we're going to talk about. What is the king? What is the palace? What is the field? What is the desert? What are the special people who can go into the palace but will by appointment? And what is the everybody? Okay. And what I'm going to do is I run through a list. What each thing means. This means this, this means this, this means that. And only then we're going to just talk and develop what, it. What, bring that to life. The king refers to the 13 attributes of mercy. The 13 attributes of God's unlimited compassion. So while often you'll hear the analogy of the king in the field where the king is God, we don't mean God himself. We don't mean God just in the general sense, we mean God in a very specific way he relates to us, which is this idea of unlimited compassion. Hashem's unlimited compassion is represented by the king. I would just like to stop and ask you a question. Um, do you think a king is a good symbol to represent unlimited compassion? Why not? Because a king can make decisions that don't necessarily wouldn't look represented by compassion. Or an opposing nation. Like, um, it's not in line with okay, so King does not um, not um, give you guys of a sense of someone who's exceptionally compassionate. That's what you think of when you think King, right? Okay. So why do you think then the analogy? This is this is just completely apparent that we don't really need to do this, but I think it's going to be helpful when we talk about Hashanah to like already sow some seeds. Why is it? That you think that he would use an analogy of a king to represent compassion, he could have used a different analogy. The fear of a king. So it's the, so the, the the fear that people have of the king. The fear that people have of it, so because compassion makes you afraid, and that's why he. because like, the, the, the the king represents Hashem's unlimited compassion. Why is a king the symbol used to represent Hashem's unlimited compassion? Well, it's like is there a difference between a Jewish king? And is there a difference you mean in the ideal of a Jewish king? I'm saying we know I mean there are stories that don't where we do see some like it doesn't line up necessarily but we know that a king has to be very like God-fearing and Right. So, I, first off, I think it's always important to remember that when we talk about something, right, we're, we're talking about something in kind of an ideal form. Of it. We're not talking about real life. And, you know, if we talk about, like, parents and children, right, we're talking about an ideal parent. We're not talking about, like, your father and my mother, right, because, yeah. or my, my father or your mother. Right? It's just, it's, I mean, they're complicated real-life beings, right? right? Okay. So, obviously, we're talking about a king in an ideal. We're not talking about a king in, in, in real life. actually capable of unlimited Very good. A king is actually uniquely capable of unlimited compassion. Okay, um, We're going to talk about this not in this class. We're going to talk more about kingship. We're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah. But I'm, I'm doing this now because I want you to maybe question a little bit about your initial assumptions when you hear the word king and kingship, God being a king. What do we really mean by that symbolism? The fact that of all the different things the Alta could have chosen to represent God's unlimited capacity, he chose a king maybe tells us that his concept of what a king is, is and the ideal is maybe a little bit different than maybe what you and I might initially think what we, is meant by a king. So put that in the back of your mind. It's not really getting relevant here, but I think questioning that will help make the Rosh Hashanah classes go a little bit smoother. Okay, so the king represents Hashem's unlimited compassion. The palace represents a holiday. A special time like Rosh Hashanah, like Yom Kippur, time that, that is that is that is outside the regular mundane life. Shabbos, these types of things, these special holy times where where we we actually abstain from being fully involved in our everyday affairs. You know, different. You know, Yom Kippur to an extreme, Shabbos somewhere in the middle. The holidays we can even cook, so it's a little bit different. But that, that's that's a a, a, a sacred time where we do not engage in regular, every mundane life. That is what is represented by the city, by the palace. Okay. Also what is represented by the palace, the palace represents two things, are sacred activities. What are sacred activities? It's like the rituals. Right, the rituals, the mitzvahs, the mitzvahs that we do, the Torah that we study. So the palace represents sacred time, but also sacred activities. Okay, so um, making a bracha would be represented by the Palace. palace, right? Shabbos would be represented by the palace, right? Okay, the field is represented by ordinary time, so regular everyday weekdays, that's the field, and also permitted activities. What are permitted activities? Work. Day-to-day regular things. Work, sleep, grocery shopping, those types of things. What does the desert represent? The desert represents ungodly activities. What would be an example of an ungodly activity? Well, they come in two varieties. One are things that are prohibited. They're forbidden. And the other is things that are prohibited for you personally. There is a concept in um, Judaism that something might be permitted objectively, but it is forbidden for you because it is not good for you to be engaged in that activity, okay? Um, So for instance, the Torah prohibits indulgent behavior. What is indulgent behavior? Depends on the person now, doesn't it, right? What is indulgent for one might not be indulgent for another. It depends on temperament. It depends on culture. It depends on age. It depends on maturity. It depends on, right? So the Torah doesn't allow us to eat pork. Does the Torah allow us to eat chocolate cake? What? Yeah, the Torah allows us to eat chocolate cake. But now, does the Torah allow us to eat chocolate cake in a way where we are just being gluttonous? No. No. But where did you cross the line to gluttonous eating of chocolate cake? Does that have like an absolute standard no. or that varies from person to person, situation to situation, right? Okay. So you have ungodly actions that are, that are kind of objectively absolutely ungodly and they're ungodly because of that particular person, who they are in that circumstance. Okay. Um, so both of those fit into the category of the desert. Okay. You notice that there's no time that's the desert. So remember how yesterday I said that time is how Hashem relates to us? Does Hashem relate to us in an ungodly way? No. So there's a there's a there's sacred time, there's mundane time, there's sacred activities and mundane activities. But ungodliness can only be found in our choices and the things that we do, which is either things that are prohibited or things that, while maybe permitted in you know, in principle, for me or for you, it's not permitted because it is destructive to our relationship with God. It's 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 um crass and indulgent and unbecoming for us even though for someone else it might actually be a step up and an improvement and help them grow what do you mean there's no time in the desert the, well the desert doesn't represent a specific time like Sunday Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday, Friday those are all represented by the field Shabbos is represented by, Shabbat, by, the, by the city it's like in the analogy right in the analogy right yeah it doesn't represent any okay um Who are so now? Who are the special people that are able to go into the palace and meet the king? Is it no, no, no. People who walk with him. Those who walk with him in the field. Those who walk with him in the field. Very good. So what is that going to represent? That's right. People who are devoted to God. When you're devoted to God, then you're then you are the kind of person who gets to go into the palace. Who is the everybody who can greet the king in the field? Everybody else. Everybody else. So people come into two in kind of two categories. There's people who are d- driven by a, a devotion to God, and there are people who are that's not like the major concern in their life. Okay. So let's just make sure we have this clear. Who, who who does the king represent? Or what does the king represent? Okay, attributes. Okay, the 13 attributes of mercy. What does the city represent or the palace? Mm-hmm. Special mm-hmm. times and holy activities, right? What does the field represent? Day-to-day activities. Day-to-day activities and regular mundane times. But what does the desert represent? Ungodly activities, Ungodly activities right? And what does the special, what do the special people who can have an audience of the king represent? People go after people who are devoted to Hashem, and then everybody else means people who are not necessarily devoted. Everybody else. Everybody else. Okay, good? Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a king and the difference between the king in the field and the king in the palace and trying to understand what is the idea. Now, there's, a, there's two ways to use analogies. Um, one way is the traditional Jewish way of using analogies. And the other way is the way speakers use analogies. The traditional Jewish way of using an analogy is that the analogy is s- supposed to represent something so you can understand it conceptually. The way speakers use analogies is the analogy is supposed to be emotionally um, evocative to make you feel something. Okay. So for instance, um, if y- you have an analogy, like our analogy about the field, it's not like you know, we talk about the field and we, make, we really flesh out what it's like the king is in the field until you're moved by that emotion and you channel that emotional energy into like, growing your service of God. That's not the traditional way of doing it. That's the way a lot of speakers will do things. They'll take an idea, they find a good story, a good analogy, and they make it very emotionally charged you know, make the audience laugh, make the audience cry. And then once you put them in that charged state, you kind of direct them to like where that energy should go and hopefully improve their lives. And... But in, in traditional sources, the purpose of the analogy is not meant to affect our emotions. It's meant to be a placeholder to understand something which is not so easy to understand. So what you have to do with the analogy is you first have to take out of the analogy the concept and then cut and paste the concept onto what you're really interested in understanding. So we have an analogy of a king and we're gonna just focus right now on him being in the palace versus being in the field. We'll get to the desert later. And what we wanna do is understand an idea that's implicit in that dynamic, then take it out of the king and out of the field and out of the palace, and then apply it to God's compassion, his unlimited compassion. And then the understanding of that is supposed to actually affect our emotions. So doing it this way is much longer, it's much more difficult, but now your emotions are being directly affected by the actual godly thing rather than a vicarious substitute. So if I tell you a beautiful story about a princess who was taken prisoner and she was rescued and like you're moved by the story. And I say, and that's the same thing with your soul. What you were moved by was the story of the princess, not your soul. But if I explain conceptually what the similarity is between a princess and the soul, and what's its connection between the soul princess being captured and the, the, the soul, what's going on with the soul. And so it gives you an understanding of the soul, and then you get moved by, by what's going on with your soul. Now your emotions are actually um, part of a relationship with that deeper spiritual truth. It's a much more convoluted way of going about it, but it's also more authentic. I'm not saying there's no place for speakers to do what they do. It's very useful. It's very motivating. Um, but it's it's, it's the shortcut route that doesn't get you to the same place. Okay, so we're going to be approaching it the traditional way. So our goal is not to feel any emotions towards kings or fields or palaces, but to understand what's going on. When the king is in the palace, there is something about the king that is revealed and something about the king that is concealed. Conversely, when he's in the field, there's something about the king which is Revealed and something about the king is concealed. The idea is there's a trade-off. What you gain in the palace, you lose in the field. What you gain in the field, you lose in the palace. So you have to think about it. What aspect of the king is revealed by him being in a palace and is no longer revealed when he's out in the field? And conversely, what aspect of the king is revealed when he's out in the field but is lost when he's in the palace? I'm going to throw this to you. Think about it. Power versus compassion no cuz remember remember at the end this is we're going to we're going to take this all to represent things about compassion so that's going to make it a little bit complicated the, the, cuz we want to understand two aspects of god's unlimited compassion You no, I'm saying? The compassion versus the authority to... Right, but, but then you would have to... But remember you, remember, you want to understand so that you can extract it from the analogy and bring it back to the thing we're actually interested in. You want to talk about the compassion of God's compassion versus the authority of God's compassion? That sounds a little bit weird. You see what I'm saying? I need, to, I need to... And this is also key. If something is brought as an analogy, there may be many ways of analyzing it, but I want to analyze in such a way that it will actually carry over to the purpose for which the analogy was brought. Right? If we give an analogy from psychology for an idea in Kabbalah, it could be that psychological phenomenon could be understood in different ways, but we want to understand in a way that will serve as a good model to understand the Kabbalistic idea. Right? Same thing if we bring an analogy from chemistry or physics. Um, so the same phenomenon could be understood in different ways, but we want to be careful about that. analogy. So what is lost and what is gained? Accessibility. Accessibility, okay. Right? When the king is in the field, he is more accessible. When the king is in the palace, he is not, okay? And we can develop what we mean by accessibility, but right now we'll just keep that. That's good. So the accessibility of the king is, is shown in the field, and that's hidden in the palace. Now what's the reverse? What's lost in the field, but but gained when the king is in the palace? Maybe attention? What do you mean attention? Because those special people who after to appointment with him who get individually one-on-one on time with him in the palace or in the field there's so many other people there that are there to him. Okay. it's not necessarily individualized okay that is a good point but there, that we run into the issue is that we're talking about something which is like a fundamental limitation of human beings and that would never carry over to anything with God right in other words what you're saying is the more things I have to deal with the less time I can focus on any one thing um but with God that kind of thing doesn't apply at, just at all um so, we're gonna set that aside. Maybe almost like the novelty of the king. Like, you know, he's in the palace. He's, like we said, like he's not as accessible. Um, you really have to actually like take the time to go see him when it's, when it's, um, you're available versus when he's in the field. You almost have like the option of whether or not you want to go. Like, it, it becomes a choice um, or you have more room to make a choice versus when he's in the palace. I don't know if that makes sense. Which one? The more choice when he's in the field? Yeah, when he's in the field, you have more choice, but when people have choice, they tend to, like, you know, like we, we don't necessarily choose what's best because we think, like, oh, he's there for however long, we can come back, we can do this mm-hmm. and that. When he's in the palace, he's there, you have to actually, like, Set time aside to go. Okay. So you're touching on it. I wanna I wanna I wanna shift it from the person to the to the king, but it, it, it feeds into what you're saying. When the king is in the palace, it's much more of an impactful thing. You are confronted with the, the majesty of the king, there's all the pomp and circumstance, all of that exclusivity, and that has a very powerful effect on the person. Whereas that's a loss when the king is in the field. And one of the things that is actually Pointed out um, is that when the king is in the field, he doesn't come with like, you know, all the same the the, the, same, the, this, the same lavish pageantry that he has in the palace. He comes in a way that's, you know, I mean he's still dressed nicely, whatever he's the king, but in, 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 in appropriate attire for being in a field. Um, so that that the 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 the, the grandeur, the intensity of what it means that he's the king that is not felt in any way to the same degree. It doesn't, therefore doesn't have the same kind of impact. And if people, as you're saying, don't treat it as this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity the way you would in the palace. So the the thing about the king is that there's, on the one hand, the accessibility of the king, but on the other hand, there's the quality of sensing that this is the king. Right? There's this kind of trade-off um, between how... M- how much it's shared, versus having a sense of what it really is. And this actually is a trade-off that we find in many, many areas in life. So I'll give you an example with knowledge. If I have a piece of knowledge and I present it in a form which is accessible to millions of people, what have I sacrificed about that knowledge in my way I presented it? I tweeted out or something. What have I I I sacrificed? You can't give all the nuance. All the nuance, all the depth, all the context, right? I've reduced it to kind of a lowest common denominator. On the other hand, if I present it with all of its depth and complexity and richness, right, I've made it very exclusive. I've made it very elite. Right? So the king has this kind of a, a, a choice. He can share something in a way where it's very accessible, share his, his royal personage in that's very accessible, but that doesn't have the same impact. It doesn't have the same... Um, power the quality of what it means to be king is not fully manifest in that. And if he wants people to sense that he is the king and he is exclusive and he is above and beyond it all, well then that by definition means that people don't have as much access. So there's this trade-off between the intensity and quality of the thing versus how accessible it is. That's the idea. Now, you notice how I'm speaking in very, very kind of generic terms? I'm not, because, because the, the analogy is, is not about like an actual king who's going somewhere. Right? This idea is that the king represents God's unlimited compassion for us. So then what does that mean? God can relate to us and show us this unlimited compassion, but he has a kind of a choice. He can do it in a way where he shows it to each and every one of us right? in a very accessible way. But what sacrifice does he have to make? Quality. The quality. Right? It does not have the same impact. And if he wants it to have the same impact, well now not everybody is capable of being in a place where they can actually receive that. Isn't that the same thing as that's like a human limitation that does No. Because it's a limitation about the recipient. Okay. In other words, I'm gonna ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Is it possible for Hashem to have given the Torah with no need um, for, for, for commentary? Could he have given the Torah in such a way that all you need is this one book with no commentary? No. I'm not asking a question about, well, God could do anything. That's not I'm asking. I'm asking you to actually think about it. Is it possible for that to work? No. Yeah. Why not? Because then everything that he gave us, it's like, we just understand it. That's how it is. And I think that a big concept is that we don't always understand. Well, I want to just go more simply, okay? Okay. Are you allowed to um, use your phone on Shabbos? No. No. Were there phones 3,000 years ago? So now we have a question. Does God write in the Torah, thou shall not use thy phone on Shabbos? Or does he not? Now, you could say he doesn't, but then you're going to need a commentary to figure out what the t- law is about the phone when we get to phones, right? Because it it's not written there explicitly. You need someone to like, figure out that. What, is, what is implicit about the phone. Or conversely, Hashem writes in the Torah, thou shalt not use thy phone on Shabbos, and then need, someone needs to tell people, there will be in the future this thing, I know you don't know what a phone is, and they'll need to comment on the unknown thing called the phone. Either way, someone's going to need to do some commenting, because the Torah is either going to have to make reference to something that nobody knows what it is yet, or the Torah hasn't explicitly made reference to something that we now encounter. In other words, when you start to think about the reality of human beings, right? we know about phones and we need to know whether we can use them on Shabbos. And 3,000 years ago, they had no concept of phones. That means that well, God has to like figure out what does he write explicitly and what does he write implicitly. And God chose to do it in a way that's a little nicer, which is that the Torah is written in such a way that the stuff that people didn't know about yet is only implicit rather than writing about the future. Remember, it'd be really weird if right, when the Jews got the Torah, it spoke about not using your phone and there would need to be like a commentary as to the phone as something that will be invented in the future and we don't yet know what it is. But like, like there's just no way you could like not have a comment on, on, on the text because of the nature of how human beings like, change the way they live their lives over time, right? If you think about, could have Hashem have given us the Torah um, in a way that we would never need translations. No, because the meaning of words change, right? Human, the, other words, once you take for granted what human beings are and how human beings function, that puts a constraint on God unless we just want God to just like do irrational magic all the time, in which case like at that point we're just puppets. So if Hashem is going to relate to us and we have this quant, quality quantity trade-off, we have this you know, is it reach everybody? That, that means that it has to kind of be reduced to a level that everybody can handle. And if it's going to be in a purer form, then not everyone can handle it. If that's the nature of people, well, if God wants to share it with us, he's going to play by our rules. Now, could he wave his magic God wand and not play by our rules? Sure, but at that point, we're just, we're not participants anymore. Okay, So it's not, that's different than saying, well, God can't focus on two people at once. I mean, I can't focus on two people at once, but God can. And so he can he that that' that but in his focusing on me it doesn't it doesn't take away from the fact that he's also focusing on someone else because that that's kind of an internal thing with him, but here we're talking about the way he's relating it to us the way it the way it reaches the created world, and so there's that trade off okay um so I, I'm going to give you an, an, an analogy of this where we have it in, in, in other contexts as well. Um, relationships. All relationships have, you know, whether we're talking about parents and children, we're talking about friendships, we're talking about spouses. Should your interactions be emotionally intense or not emotionally intense in order to have a successful relationship? At times. At times. Right, why? Because if they're emotionally intense, they require so much of the other person that that relationship is just, it, it's not sustainable in life. You need the, it's not, it's not an accessible relationship. It, it takes place in a bubble outside of reality. If, if every interaction has to be emotionally deep and profound and into, it just, you can't, that person can't be in a regular part of your life. So you need to have more casual, more subdued everyday kind of interactions. But if all you have is that, Right? then there's not a depth to the relationship, right? So that's the same dynamic in a different context. Okay? So going back to here, Hashem's compassion for us is unlimited compassion. He can relate to us with unlimited compassion in a way that it's accessible to everybody, but something about the depth and profundity of that compassion will be, will be lost and therefore won't have, be as impactful. Or he can reveal that compassion in a more overt way and it'll be very impactful, but not everybody will be able to be sensitive to that, be able to handle that, be able to be in that place. So now, what's the difference between, say, the, the unlimited compassion in the Elul and the unlimited compassion of, say, Yom Kippur? An Elul, Hashem showing us unlimited compassion, and His focus is that that compassion should reach everybody no matter where they're at. So that means, though, that that compassion is available, it's accessible, but does it necessarily have the same kind of impact on us? No, in other words, it's creating opportunity. It's creating us options, right? That we have the choice to engage with Hashem on that level, but it's not really pushing us and motivating us in in the same way. On the other hand, when Hashem shows that same unlimited compassion on Yom Kippur, He's sharing it with its full power, its full intensity, which means you need to be in a place where you can handle that. But if you're in a place where you can handle it, it will be transformative. It will be impactful. It could be life-changing, okay? So the, the analogy is that do you, is your goal to reach people no matter where they are? Well, then reaching them no matter where they are, you're lowering the, the intensity, you're lowering the quality, and you're turning something into more of an opportunity. Or is your goal to, to really move people, to really change people? In which case, you have to have the full power, the full intensity, the full quality manifest. But then that means not everybody's going to be able to be on that level. Not everybody's going to be able to handle it. If I produce the most brilliant revolutionary work of physics since Aristotle, how many people are going to be able to really appreciate it? Not at all. I don't know. You heard of a man named Isaac Newton? He wrote a book, Principa Mathematica, which is basically any physics you ever learned in high school probably was from that book, although it wasn't in that form. It's a very hard book to read. It's a very, very hard book to read. It changed. The whole modern way of thinking about physics came from that. And when it came out, many people had a very hard time with it. First off, you had to be very, very scholarly you had to be very elite. very but what's happened over time is that you reduce it, you reduce, you reduce it, and like, yeah, like, you, know, you have high school physics and you can do little experiments in like the science museum for kids and people can get the ideas, right? But, but the full revolution and depth of, of that way of change of thinking, that's, that's not for everybody. And you have this in so many areas, and that's the same thing. Does Hashem want to make an impact or does Hashem want to be available? What is the focus, what is the, what is the focus of his, this compassion? Reaching us or impacting us? If it's reaching us, then it has to reach everybody no matter where they're at, which means it, it at best creates an opportunity. But if it's about impacting us, then it's going to be very, very um, intense. It's going to have a lot of energy to it. But that means you have to be ready for that. You have to be in a place for that. You have to be um, in a situation where, where you can absorb that. And that's going to be like, say, the same compassion shown to us, but on Yom Kippur. Yeah. Um, is it possible like, to say that impact is like on is different levels for different people? So if that's the case, then it be that Hashem really could have full impact depending on the person and not their level. Like why are they, why is it like an opposition? Like, oh, if you're not on that level, then you can't be fully impacted. So, so, so the thing is that we I I'm speaking now as if they're two different people because it's easier to understand the idea. But you're actually right. It's 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 within each person themselves. Because if you remember, um, when we had the two different groups of people, what were the two different groups of people? There were people who are devoted to God and there were people who were just regular people. Okay, but if you think about that, those aren't to be two different people. They can be the same person at two different stages. Right And in each person, what counts as being devoted to God, right? What counts for you at the age you are at life to be devoted to God is different than what it means for me, and it also is different than what it means for you in ten years from now, right? so in each person, you can really understand that so so there's God reaching every person at the level of what for them counts as not really being devoted to God, and in that he's being accessible to everybody, and then what does it mean for? In other words, even the law of the tzaddik has a sense in which, given who they are, that's not real devotion. Maybe if I was experiencing that, would be real devotion. But given for them, that's just like ordinary. It's run of the mill. And for them, real devotion to God is something else. Right? So it's easier to talk about two different people, just right. not to get confused. But you're absolutely right. It's not two different actual people. It's two different. And every person, whether like even if you're not reaching a full level of devotion, you could probably still get this. The highest level okay, so so so. Well, that depends what we need. There's two ways of impacting somebody. There's impacting somebody where the goal is to cause a change. Just, and then there's impacting somebody where the goal is not to cause a change, but the goal is to cause a change which is internalized, a change which, which um, is consistent with who they are and furthers them along and i'm going to use a very very simple example what is the difference between um educating a person okay and brainwashing a person now in both cases you have values you have things you care about and you're trying to get the other person to live in those ways i think there's a very very simple difference it doesn't always mean it's easy to tell the difference in real life but if you're looking at a conception it's very easy human beings are capable of making sense of the world and and engaging in self-directed action. That's something human beings are capable of. I make sense of the world for myself and I pursue aims that I feel are important with my own kind of agency, my own free will, etc. That, that's a feature of human beings. If, my, if I'm trying to impact you, recognizing that about you and working with that to develop that part of you along a certain line, that's called education. If, on the other hand, I am trying to circumvent that facet of you and bypass that, right? I'm trying to get, no, you shouldn't figure out the world. I'll figure it out for you. You don't make the choices. I'll make the choices for you. If that's what I'm trying to do, right? In both cases, you can, you're impacting the person. But one is kind of a violence against the person. And one is, is, is um, a development of the person. So can God reveal himself in a very impactful way? Yeah, but even if it's positive, it can still be violent, Um. God came down, revealed himself in Mount Sinai, and everybody died. <laughs> so They were impacted, right? But, but, but they couldn't internalize. It didn't work with them. So the kind of impact we want is an impact that works with you. And if that's the case, well then, if, you're, if you could be, if you're, could be more devoted and you're less devoted, well then the impact is going to have to be less. Because the de- devotion is apparently a critical element for that impact to really work. If you want to think of an analogy, you, um, if, you really, if, if a teacher really wants... A student to learn, the student needs this to be interested in, in what they're learning. Um, and there's, to some degree, you know, there's only a, so much the teacher can do, right? At some point, the student themselves has to be really dedicated, really devoted to it in order to get the full depths out of things. And so, so it is going to be kind of um, conditional in that sense. For Hashem to reveal that compassion in a way that doesn't completely obliterate us and overwhelm us, but impacts us in a transformative way that actually develops us, it can only be shared to us the degree to which we are ready for that. And that's the degree to which we are living a life of what is for us devotion to God. So that's the people in the city, the, the, the people that when the king is in the city, king is in the palace, only the special people go at appropriate times. So the degree to which you're devoted to God is the degree to which you can have that revelation, that experience of how much God cares about you in a way that has real transformative impact. But then L is the opposite. L is that that compassion is being presented as an opportunity, right? The king is in the field. You can come and greet him if you want and he'll reciprocate. Where the compassion is enabling change, but not impacting the change. And if it's enabling the change, it doesn't really depend on where you're holding, right? So you're not so devoted to God. Okay, God is nonetheless coming to you and providing an opportunity, right? Now, if we go back to the notion of like, like, not just the times, but also the activities. If we want, when, when we do mitzvahs, when we learn Torah, these are things where Hashem is coming into our lives and He is coming into our lives in a way where it's, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that Hashem said, I wouldn't put on tefillin every day. If it wasn't for the fact that Hashem said, we wouldn't be keeping Shabbos, we wouldn't be keeping kosher, right? These are things that our lives are being altered because of God's will. Right? So he is impacting our lives. And if that impact is going to be constructive and conducive to growth, it depends on do you approach that with a sense of devotion to God or do you approach that with a sense of you feel like God is imposing on you. you, know, if, you if you look at Shabbos as an imposition, it's not going to help you so much in your spiritual growth. If you look at Shabbos as you're devoted to Hashem and he wants Shabbos, then Shabbos can be very conducive to your spiritual growth. Okay? So that's, that's all the king in the, in the palace. What about the king in the field, though? So now we need in order to understand. We need to go back to the field. Remember, I said that the field is a specifically a field and not a desert. This is going to be very, very important. There's a verse that says that the king is a servant of the field. Why is the king the servant of the field? Does the field have to tell the king what to do? Thank you very much. Like, he has to work within the framework of natural laws, in a way. Okay. For us to... No, I'm not talking about God. I'm yeah. talking about, like, a real king. There's a king. Oh, a king. There's a king. Yeah. Why is he a servant of the field? I mean, the field doesn't have power. The field doesn't have authority. The field can't pass laws. Like, why... Like he has to come down on their level. Like, no. Not the people in the field, the actual field. A field. A field is a place where things grow. A desert is a place where things nice. That's right. The king needs to eat, doesn't he? At the end of the day, right? No food, nothing works, right? So the king really depends on the field. And the king, right? You know it, what happens when all the when all the peasants realize that the king depends on the field? Well, if they love the king, that's great. If they don't love the king, that's called revolution. Right? The king needs the field. In other words, the king the the, 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 the king depends on the field. Because the field is a place of growth, a place of is a place where food, where the resources are developed. But a desert is a place where things die. Nothing grows there. Okay. So now, let's take an activity, and we're, the activity we're going to use is humor, making jokes, laughing. Is there a mitzvah, thou shalt tell jokes? No. no, so is that, would that with would, would telling jokes and humor and laughing, would that be represented by the field or the palace? Field. Field, because it's a permitted activity, right? Okay. Why is it important to have humor in life? You have to be happy. Okay, humor helps to be happy. Okay, and why is it important to be happy? It's a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. Really? Except on festivals, correct? It is not. There's no. There is not a general mitzvah to be happy. Mm-hmm. Despite the song, mm-hmm. um, there is a mitzvah to be happy on festivals. So on sukkahs, there's a mitzvah to be happy. By the way, the mitzvah to be happy, in a really technical sense, is not as impressive as you think. The mitzvah to be happy involves, um, like, d- it depends on gender and age. So the mitzvah to be the mitzvah to be happy on festivals for women means. Clothes or cosmetics. And for men, it means drinking wine. And for children, it means candy. That mm-hmm. yeah, is yes. So when you are married, you should just know that your husband is so luckily obligated to buy you new clothes <laughs> um, three times, th- that, that make you feel good three times a year. Mm-hmm. And that's a greater obligation than him having extra special ESSERC. Mm-hmm. Like if it's, if it's a choice between spending $300 on an ESSERC mm-hmm. mm-hmm. or $300 on a dress, he can get the regular ESSERC mm-hmm. and spend $300 on a dress because that's actually... <laughs> What? How much do Esther's actually cost? Anywhere from twenty five shekels to one thousand uh. dollars. It's like asking how much does a car cost? I mean, you know, it depends what kind of car you want to get. Supply and demand. <laughs> really be- really beautiful, perfect Esteregum are rare and people want them and the people have money willing to pay for it. So the price goes up the cheap minimal ester it, and it's it comes from a tree that like, was watered by king david like, what makes it so special like, like, symmetry lack of blemishes size color different. yeah like certain ones from like, the one yeah, yeah. Where location where it was grown like yeah all these things yeah. like, like like anything where there's supply and demand my grandmother asked me this once she asked me, she asked me how much my Esser costs And I said it costs she said that's a lot of money for a fruit And I said well, I mean you know Like everything in life You know supply and demand Okay so uh, I mean there's obviously an important There's an importance of, of joy and, and the importance of joy is that When we're joyous We're engaged in things we're, and, and obviously we should be engaged In service but That's not a mitzvah in its own right Okay um, There's another reason it's important to have humor. I'm going to give you two other reasons. One, humor ha- helps us deal with information and ideas that we would otherwise be very resistant to, right? Dealing with pain, tragedy, uncomfortable truths is something that we are better at when humor is employed, right? And another thing is that humor has a binding quality on people. Humor brings people together. So we have three important things that are gained from humor right it puts us in the right frame of mind for serving God joy right it helps us deal with negativity and uncomfortable truths right and it helps bind us together all these things help us in our service of Hashem right just so so bringing about a greater observance of Torah and mitzvahs and a greater devotion to Hashem can be enhanced by humor it can be enhanced by eating it can be enhanced by eating. all of our mundane activities can be in the service of growing our relationship with God, right? So we're human beings. We have all these human needs. We have all these human tendencies, desires, whatever the case might be. Most of them can be used in such a way that they help us serve God better. But also we can do things that are actually destructive to our service of God, right? What are those things called? Or what are those things represented by? the desert. So, what about humor which is mean and spiteful? What about humor which is sacrilegious, mocking God? What about what about what about humor which gives a person a sense of just nothing is important? Those forms of humor, are they represented by a field or by a desert? Yeah. By a desert. Okay. And you can go with this everything in life, everything in life which is not a mitzvah, there's a way in which that that is a normal thing that can ultimately be used in a constructive manner and then there's the way in which that that thing can be corrupted and be a place of death now so in our life we have all sorts of things um i don't know i'll just pick an example that completely arbitrary no reason why i'm picking this rock climbing i don't know why i'm picking rock climbing as an example (laughs) Is rock climbing represented by the palace, by the field, or by the desert? It would really, it would, really, really depend, it would depend on how it's done and its effect on you, right? So for instance, if you're rock climbing in a way that's halakhically not allowed, that would obviously go into the desert. If you're rock climbing in a way that is bringing you to negative character traits, right? Maybe that wouldn't go into the desert. But rock climbing per se doesn't, right? So now the thing is like this. When God has compassion for us in Elul, his compassion for us is for us in our holistic lives as human beings and our everyday things. The fact that we like, have hobbies like rock climbing, the fact that we need to eat and sleep, the fact that we have a sense of humor, the fact that we have um, all sorts of human issues. And all that complexity of our human life, Hashem is saying like, I, I I see the difficulties you have in your in, in your devotion to me, and I'm and I'm there for you in all the human faculties, and and let's together try to take regular everyday human life and make it more devoted to God. That's the compassion in Elo. Okay, um, the one place where that compassion can't reach is if you're involved in something which is destructive to the relationship with God. Not because God doesn't have compassion for such a person, but the compassion can't participate in that. Okay? So, like, if you, have a, if you have a kid and the kid is not doing well in school, is it appropriate, if the kid is not doing well in school, for the parent to take them out of school one day and take them out for pizza and a milkshake? Is that an appropriate thing to do? So then you're saying it could be appropriate, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, right? For that could be bonding act experience, which creates, uh, you know, helps strengthen the child, which then helps create the basis of helping work on whatever the issues in school are, and the, right? Also gives a child a sense that school is not the end-all and be-all of everything because something's being outside of something. Right? There's a lot of ways in which that could be perfectly, right? Right? But if the parent is taking the child out of the school because school is hard so let's just avoid it, well, that's not compassion for the child's difficulty in school. Because again, part of compassion is confronting the issue. You see the difference between those two things? Activities which further the problem, compassion can't be involved in those things. The desert is a place where Hashem's compassion can't reach because the desert are those things that we do either because they're actually forbidden or for us they're forbidden because for us they're destructive for Hashem. Hashem can't express His compassion and reach us in when we're involved in those activities. But anything that's not that activity, Hashem says, look, I know this is not a mitzvah. I know this is just like your person. But this thing is part of you and therefore there is a way in which this can help you be more connected to me. And so I see you having a hard time feeling connected to me. Let's figure out how to live your holistic life, not just the religious activities, not just the holy days. In a way, there's more devotion to Hashem. And He's there for us in that. And that helps bring a person to a state where they're living their life with devotion to Hashem holistically, then they're the kind of person when it comes to the special days, when it comes to the special rituals. They're sensitive to the godly impact that's going to be there, and then they can really grow and really change in their relationship with Hashem. But that is contingent upon us not being destructive. So, would, how is that infinite? Oh, ah, because the compassion is not the compassion is not being limited. The compassion, in other words, it's not that Hashem doesn't have compassion for the person who's engaged in these desert activities. It's just the compassion can't reach them. In other words, in other words, if 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 I have compassion for somebody, it doesn't mean I give them money to buy more drugs. Right, and as long as that's the only thing they want from me, I can't give it. I can't give manifestation to my compassion. But it doesn't mean the compassion isn't there. So the compassion is. The compassion is direct. The compassion is not only for the people in the field; it's also for the people in the desert. But the compassion can't reach them while they're in the desert. They have to leave the desert and and greet the king in the field. Does that make sense? If you insist on doing something which is destructive to your relationship with Hashem, you can't sit there with your arms folded and say, "And God should meet me where I'm at and and be with me in my destructive behavior." That doesn't make sense. But what is unique about El is a person can say, look, I'm a human being. I have a sense of humor. I have hobbies. I have my mental health issues. I have, you know, persons when they're married, they have a romantic side to their life, right? They're a parent. They have finance. They've got all this stuff. It's not all, you know, Torah and mitzvahs. It's not all sitting and saying, till him all day. And like, this stuff, it's like, this is is most of what I'm involved in. So is it any shock that I'm not totally devoted to God? I said, no, that's it. I, I hear the problem, let me come to you, let me be with you in these things, and support you in trying to figure out how to engage in all these different parts of your life in a way where they are constructive to relating to Hashem. And then that changes the person to the kind of person who is living a life of devotion to Hashem, and then they're able to be sensitive to the more powerful revelation that comes about on holy days, the more powerful revelation that comes about in the holy acts. And if the, but, but the place where that, the, that compassion can't reach the person is where the person insists on engaging in behavior, which is destructive to the relationship. Hashem's compassion reaches us in things which can be constructive. That's the idea that the king comes to the field. The field is a place of growth. That even the king, in a certain sense, derives something from it. right? Hashem's relationship with us depends on us be using all of our different facets of it as a human being in a way that's constructive relationship with Hashem. And so, there's a way in which Elul is, 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 is more of an impressive thing than, say, Yom Kippur. Because... If you go back to the analogy I said about when you're, when you're, when you're re- about like sharing something with many, many people and you're sacrificing something, if, you're sharing, if you want to spread something and you like reduce the lowest common denominator, what does that say about your belief about the value of what you're sharing and the value of other people? The fact that you're willing to sacrifice its quality, its depth in order to reach everybody. No, no the, 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 opposite. the opposite, because if I, if, 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 if I think this is really, really important, I think other people are really important, then whatever way to make it work, right, there's a way in which devotion is manifest by flexibility, not by rigidity. The more devoted I am to somebody else, the more flexible I am in trying to figure out how to make things work with them. So what does that tell us? Where do we see a deeper compassion from Hashem when the compassion is powerful and it's impactful and it's transformative, but it depends that we really be on the same page as God already? Or a compassion that reaches us in all of our mundane life and all of our human issues and all of our things. And it may seem shallower because what's reaching us is something that is not as impactful. It's something that's just creating an opportunity and we have to do a lot of work. But if we think about where it's coming from on God's part, it's coming from a very deep devotion. It's coming from God not settling and saying, well, it's good enough that the people are devoted to me. I'm able to reach them. I want, no, he wants everybody. And so when a person really thinks about that, El is not just, it's not just oh, it's a preparatory thing. There's something more profound going on. There's a kind of a bond between the king and his subjects that is, that is demonstrated that he goes out of his way to be in the field to be accessible to them that that's not evident when he's in the palace. And so when, when, Hashem said, when Hashem is saying, I see the problem, you're not living a life of godliness, and that's not okay. But I don't, I don't hold that against you, I, I care about you, so I wanna solve that problem. And therefore I want to be from that place, I want to be present, holding your hand available to you to help you figure out how to, everything from your hobbies to your finances, figure out how to live that in such a way which it is conducive to a life of devotion to Hashem. That's a very different mode of compassion. It's Again, it's something where it puts a lot of emphasis on what we make of it, what we do with it. Right? It's not coming to Hashem and inspiring us. It's creating an opportunity. It's empowering us. But it's coming from, in a certain sense, a deeper place than a compassion that would be more impactful. Because, because it has that flexibility It has that reaching everybody. And the fact that it doesn't reach the desert, the fact it doesn't reach the destructive actions, the actions which are forbidden, the actions which are maybe technically permitted, but for an individual, they're not good for them. It's not because God is withholding his compassion from you, because then that would be limited. It's that the compassion would be self-destructive if it, if it, if it empowered you to further in those things. So there's almost the sense that the king is on the edge of the field right next to the desert, right? So that even the people in the desert can like hop over. And so what that means is that focusing on how the entirety of my life, not just the artificial aspects that are religious, how Hashem wants all of that to be something that we can connect on and realizing that He's invested in that and He cares about me in that and He's here for me to help me figure out what kind of new and creative and and more honest ways of dealing with my, my needs and my hobbies and my whatever and my in order that my life can be more holistically devoted to. So that then when I do enter a religious time or religious activity, I'm the kind of person that can gain a tremendous amount from Hashem's revelation in that. And in that sense, El El should be almost seen as an independent idea, not, not, not just a preparation for Rosh Hashanah, but it's an independent value. And if you think about it, I mean, hopefully you've had these experiences, but like say if a parent, you know, spends time with their child that is on the child's world because the parent wants the child to know the child, that they're there for them and, and, and helps them construct. Those types of things, they, they're, they're, they form the kind of the core bond that the child feels to their parents in a way that when the, the you know, the, the, the fact that the, the parent helped the child with their hobby or the parent took the child out of school, you know, just for an ice cream once or so these types of things where the child felt, my parent, was with me on my level and, and, and worked with me in that place. And that's really what El is about. That's the king in the field. The king in the field is that Hashem's compassion comes to our humanity. It doesn't stay locked up in the religious arena, which is represented by the city. Right? And that's going to be very different because when we get to Tishrei, Tishrei is a month of just religious stuff. It's back to back. You know, there's Rosh Hashanah, there's days of tshuva, Shabbos of tshuva. Then there's Yom Kippur. Then there's Sukkot. There's Sukkot. It's just like one religious thing after the next. El, there's no religious things. El is you're a human being. And God's like, I, 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 I want to help you and be with you and figure out how to be devoted to Hashem in the totality of your humanity. The one thing that, that can't touch is, one thing that can't help with is how can you be more devoted to Hashem when you're destroying your relationship with Hashem? That's not going to work. Make sense? Okay. So that's kind of the analogy of the king in the field. And so therefore, what's important for us in L is to be in the field and not to be... In the desert. In the desert. If we're in the field, we will grow. But if we're in the desert, we'll miss, El, we'll miss the opportunity to Elul. And so what that means on a very practical level is to try and live our lives not just to maximize the amount of religious stuff we're doing but to live our lives holistically in a way that is conducive to a relationship with God, conducive to being devoted to God. And the fact that He's there with us will help make that transformation more successful, more effective. Good? All right. We are done with Elul. We're not done with Elo, but we're done in this class with El because we have so much more to cover. So tomorrow, God willing, we will start talking about Rosh Hashanah. And uh, I'm going to again assign something to think about. You don't actually have to do it, but I recommend it. This question of, well, what do we mean by a king? And, and keep the fact that, for instance, the altar be used a king as a symbol for compassion, but somehow a king is uniquely capable of unlimited compassion. What do we think in Judaism when we have a symbol of a king? God is a king. What do we mean by that? Because Rosh Hashanah, we're going to see this branch about making God king. If we don't know what we mean by that. We don't see that as a good thing. We're not going to really want to make him a king. Good? We have a question, going back to the beginning. Yes. you know verse you said like there's Two types of mercy. So that's there's the limited and the unlimited. So is it all the 13 attributes of God? Those are the limited.